Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us uh, for this show today. We air right here on KTRL 90.5 FM each week, Sunday at noon. And you can also listen streaming on the internet at tarletonradio.com. If you miss any show, this one or any previous show, we have a wide range of topics that we've discussed since we've been on the air almost two years. You can go to SoundCloud and you can listen to all of our previous episodes. You can look up by topic and you can also download wherever you get your podcast. So we're glad you're with us today and we've got a great show planned talking about a number of things. Uh, In the latter part of the show, we'll get to the special session of the Texas legislature. Also talk a little bit about the Supreme Court ruling on the recent Arizona election laws. But before we do that, we want to welcome to the show today Brian Bondi, who is the Granbury Chamber, Chamber of Commerce president, uh, who began in that role on April 1st, 2021. So not only a challenging time, but an, a time of opportunity here in the in the COVID or post-COVID era, as we should say. Uh, he was president of the Conroe Lake Conroe Chamber of Commerce uh, prior to that. Uh, while in Conroe, he helped grow the chamber's financial position with a combination of special event and membership development. He established the Chamber to D.C. fly-in program where members of the chamber visited Texas senators and representatives in the nation's capital. Uh, He's been part of Chamber of Commerce work in Texas and Missouri for over 25 years, serving as a volunteer, committee member, committee chair, board member, and board officer before transitioning to this part or this side of the desk with the Northwest Communities Chamber of Commerce in suburban St. Louis. Brian, we want to welcome you. It sounds like you've got a wealth of experience here in, in your work. And of course, you've come to Granberry and to our region at a very uh, critical, challenging, but opportune time. And we're glad to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the invitation, Eric. Look forward to visiting with you this afternoon. Well, we've, we've had this focus in our region uh, and the people on that listen to our show and of course people here locally like to hear about things local. And so it's important for us and we often on these shows get back to uh, a number of things looking at an education and healthcare. Uh, one area that's been very critical and, uh, and always is, is in Texas and I would think anywhere locally is e- economics. It's the local economy, it's what's happening with businesses, it's how those resources Resources are generating resources for public services. I mean, there's there's just so much connected here. And on previous shows, as, as I discussed with you before we went on air, uh, we've talked to some of our uh, business leaders here in Stephenville, the Chamber, the Small Business Development Center. And this is just a great opportunity here as we're coming out of the effects of the pandemic and we're seeing what those actually are, what's what's holding or lasting or what we're still having to deal with and how recovery is going. And I just saw this as a great opportunity to connect with you and, and talk a little bit about this, of what, what is going on and what you see in, in Granbury and in the region in terms of this economic recovery and what some of those challenges are still exist uh, for our businesses as we look to the months and years ahead. So uh, Texas is in a unique position because we opened up sooner, although the pundit said that uh, there was going to be doom and gloom. It's been anything but that. So we have a unique opportunity before a lot of the other states uh, in the country to to get back to work. Uh, Part of the hindrance of getting back to work has been the additional unemployment benefits that were discontinued back at the end of June. Um, And as we zero in specifically on the Granbury area, Hood County, really our biggest challenge is workforce. That is, and I think we could probably say that's going to be our challenge for some time to come, not just in Granbury and Hood County, but throughout the Metroplex. Uh, Getting people back to work is job one. Getting the right people to work, making sure that the skills line up with the jobs that are open. Um, those are all going to be significant challenges as we move forward. So in the in the middle of that, in trying to encourage a growth in workforce and making sure people are there and have the skills that they need, uh, what what are some of the 
the things that you're looking at as a chamber, which uh, my understanding, and correct me here, uh, in terms of your mission, is supporting these local businesses and in, in connecting them with opportunities. So how, how does the chamber go about that, that effort in focusing on uh, workforce development? Uh, any kind of education program where we can piggyback with the local school district, with Tarleton, other colleges. Um, a lot of times through Workforce Solutions, they'll have programs that we can piggyback on. And for us, it's really about letting the business community know that these resources are available. Um, and, and so many times, a business person is, is so focused with their head down, trying to make the ends meet, that they don't think about um, how can I get better employees. Um, and so, for example, uh, later this year, the chamber is going to be bringing a uh, New York Times best-selling author, Glenn Shepard, to Granbury to do a, uh, a leadership and management seminar um, that will be targeted to, to small businesses. And those are the kinds of things that as we come out of the pandemic that the chamber really has a sweet spot for. So keeping along the same line, talking about uh, workforce, uh, I was on vacation the last uh, or first part of this week. And one of the things that, that we noticed, uh, especially in the hotel industry, uh, th there's a challenge there getting people on the job. And some of that then connects with customer service, which is you know, critical uh, for businesses and maintaining their, their customer base. Um, how do you see this working in Granbury? Uh, Granbury has a lot of events, a lot brings in people from uh, all over the state, I would say maybe even beyond in terms of some of the events, especially here during the summer. Uh, is that challenged at this point in terms of, of customer service, of, of having people uh, there available, ready to take these jobs and to help the businesses in your area accommodate for these particular events? So Granbury is very much a tourist destination. Um, and while 2020 was the antithesis of non-tourism, 2021 is turning out to be the, the breakout year for uh, people getting out of wherever they're from and they're coming to Granbury. And so the service businesses, as you mentioned, the, the hotels, uh, the restaurants, that they are struggling to find people. And so there is now upward pressure. We're starting to see upward pressure on wages um, to try and entice more people to come back to work. Sign on bonuses, uh, stay bonuses if you get to a certain time frame. Um, so businesses have got to think outside the box and, and we're starting to see a lot more of that here in Granbury. That, that's good. I mean, that's a challenging time that uh... I think it's unprecedented, at least in, in, in our lifetime, to see something like this that has such a broad impact. But then, you know, we've had all these debates over minimum wage and so on. And here we see the market forces uh, pushing some of that just in the terms of the demand of, of labor. Uh, how as we look ahead, so the months ahead and coming out of the pandemic, um, one of the things I think with the with the work of the chamber and of course chambers being connected across the state and nationally, uh, are there uh, programs that are still in place that maybe they were initiated during the pandemic or prior to that that are a focus of yours in trying to uh, support local businesses, resources that they can tap into, whether it's, you are talking about events that you sponsor, but we know that the federal and state governments have pushed a lot of resources and there looks like there might be more on the horizon, at least for, for uh, local governments and communities to address some some issues. Are there anything still out there kind of lingering that that's a, that's a focal point of trying to get resources down uh, to local businesses? Yeah, that's a great question, Eric. Um, you know, back in May, the PPP program was shut down, uh, which was a huge benefit for small businesses. Uh, unfortunately, the small businesses that needed it, a lot of them were, were reluctant to take advantage of it. Um, and now there is still availability of funding through the IDLE program, but that's a loan. And so you've got folks that, you know, not sure if they want to take out a loan, although at three and three quarter percent interest rate, that's a pretty good opportunity to, to uh, keep your business from going under. Um, so a lot of that federal money in terms of getting down to the local level has kind of dried up. So where we find ourselves really trying to work together is with SBDC and SCORE 
and other SBA programs that are designed to help the, the businesses either get started and get off the ground or hopefully to, uh, to save them from going under. Well, they're in they're in a, a great place for opportunity uh, there in Granbury. As you know, we've discussed this before. Uh, I've assisted with the uh, debate with the mayoral candidates and the city council candidates, and a lot of the attention there was focused on this economic uh, and demographic growth that's happening uh, in Granbury. Uh, within that that context, you know, and looking at some of the the challenges there and local governments working together with the chamber and with businesses and so on. Uh, what, what do you see are some of the, the, the challenges ahead in, in not just the economic growth? We know that that's, that's being driven by a lot of this, but being able to accommodate that. I know a lot of the things that were focused uh, with the questions were about how the, the city functions in relation to handling growth and being able to manage it. Um, on the business side, you know, there's some would say there's never a, uh, too much growth is not enough, right? It's uh, but but it, it can be, right? If you can't meet all the demand that you need to, so somewhere in there is a balance, and I would think you have your eye on that at the chamber, and how do you how do you navigate that? How do you be have a, a really important role with the city and with other local governments and with your small businesses in navigating uh, that that potential growth that's ahead? Yeah, so in my line of work, there's only two kinds of communities, those that are growing and those that aren't. And um, one of the challenges for a growing community is infrastructure, whether it's water, wastewater, power, uh, transportation. These are all core issues that you can't just wave a magic wand and they go away. So we're talking about something that has been dealt with for the past 25 or 30 years, it's gonna be dealt with for the next 50 years. I mean, it's it's not something that ever goes away, uh, specifically as it relates to the city of Granbury, as we heard at the, the candidate forum, um, you know, wastewater is is a very hot topic here. Um, you know, as the, as the community has grown, the existing treatment facility isn't capable of, of doing what it's supposed to do and another one is going to need to be built. Now, where that ends up, excuse me, where that ends up remains to be seen, um, but that's an issue that isn't just a, a one or two year issue, that's, that's a long-term issue. Same thing with 377, you know, that's our main corridor through town. And yet, if you look on any given evening at five o'clock, it looks more like Houston than it does Granbury because of the, the cars that are lined up. At some point, TechStot's going to have to come to the table and accelerate the timeline to make that road safer and more accessible for people coming and going. So big challenges, but also uh, good ones, I think, to have maybe with the growth that you're seeing in, in Granbury. Uh, part of that growth is usually targeted at attracting additional businesses. Uh, I've lived in Brownwood, which uh, had that focus for a number of years being where it's located. Of course, Stephenville with its growth and, and looking at that as well. Um, where is, what is the role of the chamber uh, in, in that process? Uh, I know you've got some things. I mean, I come over there to visit uh, some of your uh, 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 hardware lumber establishments on a regular basis uh, because there's always something I can't find here in Stephenville <laughs> that's in uh, Granbury. Uh, uh, so a little bit envious on that side of it, but but you already have some of that that you would see as essential to a community and providing the kinds of retail that 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 people want. They, they're going to move to an area or they want to have proximity to. Uh, are there other things on the horizon, uh, the types of businesses, things that are looked at, or is it also the the fact that you're you're being watched by certain corporations that say hey we we, we see the traffic we see the growth uh, we want to see about locating at some point in the future yeah so um, we are very fortunate um, my predecessor Mike Scott um, built an economic development platform where the city and the county contribute uh, a specific amount of money each year and the chamber runs that economic development for them. And Shay Hopkins is, is our economic development vice president, and she is exceptionally well-connected. And in basically in a year and a half, because we kind of lost uh, some of the momentum with COVID, um, we've been able to close uh, over $205 million in new capital investment. Now remember, you don't incentivize retail. Retail is going to follow rooftops, and rooftops are coming here. What you want to try and do in, in any good economic development program is attract either capital investment that has very little impact on infrastructure 
or jobs that bring people, high paying jobs that bring people who live here, work here, play here. That's kind of where we're focused right now, those two areas. Uh, and, and to be able to have a $205 million capital investment in about 20 months of work is unbelievably successful. And it indicates the value that this community has in its, its part of the Metroplex. That's, that's great to hear. That's phenomenal, too, in thinking about even in this COVID era with all the challenges that are happening. Uh, one, one question that, that goes back to that just you know, briefly, because I know a lot of this is uh, looking at uh, how businesses have adapted and coming out of the, this, the, the pandemic. Uh, of course, a lot was focused on technology. And that was a question I remember uh, asking the chamber president here was, how the chamber was helping during the pandemic to businesses that had not used technology uh, to the extent where they could connect with their customer base. Uh, what, what do you, do you see other trends like that coming out of, of the pandemic and moving ahead that where businesses are adapting in different ways that they've, they've found successful uh, and they know that they may hold on to, to some of those things going forward? What we found specifically as it relates to the chamber is that our membership has a wealth of knowledge on different topics, and we started utilizing them as, as uh, subject experts in producing programming, and the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. So for us, that's a model that we can continue. We can tap into a ready stream of people who know everything from retail to logistics, transportation, and everything in between. And why shouldn't we? That's part of what our job is, is to not only help promote the community, but help promote our members' businesses. And I think you're going to see chambers of commerce do more of these kinds of things and, and look for ways to not only generate new sources of revenue, but also provide more added value for that member's investments. Very good. Yes, I saw some of that as well and attended some different things where it seemed like uh, the focus uh, became much more about the community, about how to uh, help each other uh, through this crisis and what resources, knowledge that people had that they could share uh, in, the, in the chamber becoming a very a crucial uh, uh, part of that in connecting people. And I see that uh, certainly going forward as well. Um, looking to your program, what the chamber is doing in Granbury, uh, you mentioned about uh, people now uh, traveling, the, the tourism growing. We're, we're looking at the fall semester that we think we'll be doing double time here with people trying to make up with events and things that they didn't get to do last Very year. Very much so. Uh, what, what, what is the plans with the chamber? What do you have coming up and what are some of the, the, the focal points that you have in uh, helping local businesses, but also being a critical part of what's happening in Granbury? So uh, we like to consider ourselves uh, Granberry's front door. And there was a time, you know, 10, 15 years ago where the foot traffic in and out of a chamber's office was constant every single day. Folks traveling, stop in at the chamber, pick up this, pick up that. And today our front door is our website. And so one of the things that when I got here, our team said, you know, we, we need to take a hard look at where we're at. And to that end, our board uh, supported, that's the word I was looking for, um, we're in the front end of rebranding the chamber. Uh, new logo, website, uh, marketing materials, because we want to position ourselves to that next generation of business owners. And it's not something that we have previously done. We know that the boomers are aging out of the workforce at a rapid rate. Xers and Yers are, are coming up and millennials and Gen Zs are right in behind and they don't necessarily know the value of a chamber of commerce. We will be spending a lot of time appealing to that market and helping them understand why it's a good investment for them and their business. Uh, looking at, at, at providing benefits for membership levels, things that we haven't done in the past, not because we were ignorant to it, but because we didn't we didn't have to. It was it, it, we were benefiting from from just being where we're at. Now it's a real competitive market. You know, you've got Stephenville, you've got Cleburne, uh, you just Benbrook. I mean, so we need to position ourselves as an organization that's not your dad's or granddad's uh, chamber of commerce. That we're on the edge of change, and we want to be a change agent for our businesses. So on that note, so always this show has a, a strong focus on civic engagement. How how do we connect with the listener out there, with the the average person, in terms of 
current issues and, and that are going on around them, whether they're economic, political, intertwined, as, as we see many of them are. Uh, I know a lot of your messaging and focus is on businesses and connecting people, but I know you also engage with the public. I mean, I saw that through the forum uh, that you provided. Uh, your, how do you communicate that to kind of the average person of the significance and role of the chamber and what they should know about a chamber of commerce and its important a place within a community like yours? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because uh, in, in the bygone years, uh, we really didn't worry too much about messaging to the public. It really was just an internal message that, that we were trying to get across, you know, through things like the forums that we do for uh, elections. It's a very important role for the Chamber of Commerce. Advocacy is rapidly becoming the number one reason why businesses join the Chamber because we can provide access to those candidates, whether it's at the local level, county, state, federal level. Uh, that is a unique opportunity that Chambers of Commerce can, can parlay. Um, I think the other part of that, though, is in uh, the events that we hold. Uh, th this past weekend is probably the best example. Uh, the Chamber has for decades put on the annual 4th of July celebration. The, uh, the vendors on the square, the parade on Saturday, the fireworks on the 4th, that's all a chamber-driven event that the public sees a direct benefit from without necessarily investing in it themselves. Um, so the more we do to make those kinds of things more visible, more accessible, more uh, appealing, uh, the more likely they are to say, well, what's that organization up to now? Because I remember they did this last year and it wasn't nearly this good or whatever the case might be. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that, I think that's uh, uh, in the role that you have and, and in terms of understanding that uh, engagement with critical issues that are impacting the community, especially economic businesses, types of services, uh, things that are available to people. Uh, I mean, I think that's important for everyone to know about that that what does the chamber of commerce do i mean what what opportunities do they provide how how engaged are they in the community and and i think that's great in terms of that event opportunity provides you with that and as well as your visibility uh, i think that's a uh, very important because people need to know that one the chamber is not government right i mean that's, that's uh, correct um, right and, and and sometimes that I, I think that that gets confused you know the people uh are or don't understand how a, a community really takes these different both government non-government entities and organizations and uh, whether they're economic focused or you know religious or culturally focused that it's all of this together that that really makes a, a community whole this is a show on politics. I'm not going to ask you a, a blatantly political question here, but my one of my areas that I enjoy so much and I work with students is in the realm of public policy. And so I do have to ask, you know, we just had a session of the state legislature. Uh, we, uh, you know, Congress work is ongoing with looking at various uh, packages that may or may not pass that may have impact on a broad level. Is there anything going on or that came out of the session, anything that, that has you see that has had a significant impact on uh, what a chamber of commerce does or what, what resources are out there for businesses. I know we mentioned a few things that, that had been in place, uh, but just as, you know, the newspaper industry and other, other groups, you know, watch those sessions to see what happens. I didn't know if there was anything that, that had happened in this previous session or that's on the horizon uh, that, that you're following. You know, uh, this particular session, as it relates to the business community, was relatively quiet. Now, the special session uh, will bear to really pay attention to what, what's, what's going to get done. Uh, it's a long list. Uh, it's an aggressive list. Uh, I'll be surprised if, if they get three or four of those things uh, accomplished in the 30 days. And, um, you know, we think that there's probably going to be at least one and possibly two more special sessions if ultimately those list of items that the governor wants uh, the legislature to address actually get addressed. Um, for us, you know, the probably the biggest one that didn't get handled in the legislature was the reauthorization of Chapter 313, which is really more of a tool in the tool belt for economic development. Um, maybe not so much here in, in Granbury, but for communities that have a large industrial customer that could make a huge uh, investment, uh, not having the ability to put together a, a program through Chapter 313 becomes more challenging for them. 
Um, you know, our hope is that, that they'll take a look at that. And I have a feeling that the TEDC and, and other uh, state trade groups are, are paying attention to it as well. Sure. Yeah, we know that special sessions are times for, for bargains and you never what, know what somebody will throw on the table to get ultimately the outcome they want, but know that they're going to have to agree to some other things as well. And and th this is where it comes down to with the governor and the legislature in terms of what they, they want to get out of this. And so it, it'll be interesting to see. But, uh, uh, but yes, uh, I know it, it's probably good that it was somewhat of a quiet session in, in that I think the focus was on uh, just not inhibiting economic recovery since, as you said at the beginning, it was really already underway in Texas with opening back up. Uh, and uh, again, we're seeing it, I think, all across the state. Well, Brian, I want to thank you for joining us today. This is very uh, engaging in terms of understanding the role of the Chamber of Commerce and what the work that you're doing uh, in your area and in Granbury. Uh, we'd certainly like to have you back in the future as we see uh, things grow there and, and change, uh, especially with the, the infrastructure issues, because those are where uh, often the political side of it connects with the, the economic and is very critical in our communities. So thank you again for joining us today. Eric, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show and look forward to visiting with you again real soon. All right. That's Brian Bondi, Bondi, the president of the Granbury Chamber of Commerce, talking about that chamber and the work uh, that's going on there in Granbury and, of course, broader issues coming out of the pandemic. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we will be back with more on politics. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow. We're glad you're joining us here today on KTRL 90.5 FM. We had in the first half of the show an interview with Brian Bondi, the president of the Granbury Chamber of Commerce. And we also uh, discussed a number of issues related to the chamber there, but also to the economic recovery uh, post a pandemic. Uh, we want to give you the website for the Granbury Chamber. That's granburychamber.com. So if you want to learn more about the Granbury Chamber of Commerce and what they're doing in that community uh, and the role that the chamber has, uh, then uh, take a look at that website. They've got a lot of information on there about their different programs and the things that they offer to the community. And of course, we'll be following many of these issues and discussing them uh, in the future uh, as we go forward in looking at the recovery from the pandemic. Also, I want to uh, talk about a couple of other issues today on the show, as I mentioned at the very beginning, and one was that the Texas legislature is back in session, and so they went back into session this past week called by the governor of the state to deal with a number of different issues and the special session. Why it is happening? Well, the Texas Tribune has a great article, which I'll post on our Facebook page that's on politics with Eric Morrow. And it goes through a number of the different issues that are going to be covered during that session in terms of what is on the agenda. Now, a special session in Texas is only 30 days. It has to be called by the governor. The governor sets the agenda for that session. And so Governor Abbott, in calling the special session, put 11 items, which, as Brian said in our previous interview, uh, was a very aggressive agenda. There's a lot of things here that probably will not uh, make it through uh, the special session. Everything from bail overhaul to elections, which we'll talk more about in a moment, Funding for border security, as Governor Abbott and we've talked about on this show, has been critical of the Biden administration in terms of federal resources available at the Texas border with Mexico. Uh, social media censorship, legislative branch funding, uh, which probably will get passed, that funds the offices and the, of the committees and the legislators. Family violence prevention, limiting access to school sports teams for transgender students abortion-inducing drugs, an additional payment for retired Texas teachers, critical race theory, which we covered a few weeks ago, and other budgetary issues. So yes, very aggressive agenda, 
of course, out of the starting gate uh, was the return to debate over revising election laws in the state of Texas. This was the one, the Senate Bill 7, that was on the table, and Democrats walked out at the last minute, uh, preventing a quorum and the ability to pass that bill. And, of course, Governor Abbott right away said that it would be on the top of the list uh, for a special session. And so that has already begun. The debate on that began this past week when the session opened on Thursday. A different committee, a different committee chair, a different focus here to try to see if they can navigate this. Also, pressures being put on Texas Democrats in the House of Representatives and in the Senate to to go along with this, to uh, to. Uh, work together uh, for a particular outcome and, of course, threats to say, don't walk out again. Uh, Don't do some of the things and use some of the tactics uh, that you used before. Of course, at the center of this, and I won't revisit this too much because it was a focus of a show that we had with Dr. Marcy Reynolds, and that is putting more restrictions on options available to local elections administrators to be able to uh, facilitate the election. So some of the attention is being given to the 24-hour voting sites. Uh, Another is to ballots being sent out by mail um, and extended hours of the the drive-through voting. What the legislature has been looking at is trying to standardize more of these practices across the state and put kind of boundaries on it. What at one time had been the opportunity for local election officials to extend different options and opportunities as long as election integrity uh, could be uh, uh, could be affirmed. That's been one of the focal points here is that election security is the focus of one side, or we might say elections integrity Right. Maintaining the the fact that uh, elections are free of, of, of any kind of pressure, that people are able to vote as, as they can, uh, that uh, fraud is prevented. On the other side are those who are looking at voting accessibility, and that is, are we providing enough opportunity uh, and ways in which people can uh, use their right to vote? And so this has become a major issue across the United States, of course, reaching the Supreme Court uh, with a decision that came down on the Arizona laws that were under review, one a statutory law regulation, and another uh, the uh, a, a House bill that was passed uh, related to, uh, and were, these were related to two areas. Uh, one was in what they call ballot harvesting, uh, where uh, ballots were collected up in a certain area. Uh, This was done at times by campaign officials uh, or by others that were not either postal workers or election officials. So it tightened that up to say that only election officials or postal workers could gather ballots. Uh, The other uh, in this focus uh, uh, on election laws is voting in precinct. So on election day, they had a requirement that you had to vote in your precinct. You couldn't go to another precinct. And if you did vote in another precinct, the election officials had the uh, right under the law uh, to uh, uh, to discard that ballot because it was not cast in the right precinct. Now, these are some common practices across the United States in terms of how elections are conducted. And essentially what the Supreme Court decision uh, said, the majority, uh, was that that not only should states be responsible for administering their elections, they should be the ones to determine uh, how they conduct those elections, knowing that there is going to be uh, some modest imposition, right? People are going to have to go vote somewhere, or they're going to have to, to show ID, or they're going to have to vote in their precinct, um, that, that there have to be some limits on flexibility, here and some imposition in order to ensure the integrity of an election and that this was not such a an obstacle to oper- the opportunity to vote. And th- again, this is coming from the majority opinion of the Supreme Court that upheld uh, the two laws in Arizona. Uh, that election security is certainly important. Preventing fraud is certainly important. 
exercising the right to vote is important. But on the other hand, the the state is not able to accommodate every specific need or means that would make voting more accessible. I mean, again, I think we're pushing now uh, the debate about where is the threshold of that? Where is Where do you find the balance between accessibility and then creating an undue burden uh, on someone in terms of exercising their right to vote? So we're in that kind of gray area, whereas you have some on the ideological side of this that would say that any burden uh, is a challenge. Well, we know in this day and age, in order to have security, uh, there is going to have to be some burden in order to make sure that elections are free of fraud or outside influence, uh, that there is going to have to be a burden because things have to be checked. They have to be verified. It has to have to assure that people who are voting are actually registered voters. Um, and what we also see in all of this is the, the challenges going forward when you don't have tremendous amount of data on either side uh, that supports one or the other. It's navigating now a an area that is more influenced, and this is where we get into the challenges of it, by the politics of it all, the partisanship. As we've said on previous shows, coming out of that 2020 presidential election, uh, when you had this focus put on the outcome, when you had many who were saying, well, there, there has to be something that was either wrong about this or that that set this up for this result to happen with, with Joe Biden being elected. And so the attention then began to turn to voting practices, especially in a pandemic era where there were a lot of modifications made uh, to facilitate voting, extending early voting, uh, voting by mail, extending that as well, drive-through voting. There were just many practices that were used that were uh, different from what had been done in the past that expanded the ways in which people could vote, but then also now are raising concerns about the potential for fraud or that 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 some with an ulterior motives may use this with their agenda uh, to try to commit fraud in order to influence the outcomes of elections. Uh, so all of this is, though, being looked at and debated in a political environment that has people kind of set up on each side. I mean, again, the mainstream in both sides, I think we have to make this clear and say this, is that, that the majority wants secure elections. There's no disagreement on that. The majority want people to vote who have the right to vote. Again, agreement on that. It's where the emphasis is being placed on how the laws are being developed, how they're being reviewed and implemented uh, in terms of this tremendous political pressure. So here you have people who've been elected to office. They're, they're being pressured by those back in their districts to say, we have to fix this. The election did not turn out the way we wanted it to. That means there must have been something wrong. We've got to address it, thus this additional scrutiny. My argument has been that the, all of this really covers over the more practical aspects of carrying out elections, and that is there's a tremendous cost on the taxpayers to ensure the, the security of elections, uh, and that the more variety of ways that you offer to vote, the more that that cost increases. And so you're not able to, the state is not able to say, we must provide every way possible to vote to accommodate every certain group uh, that would need that accommodation. Okay, whether we're talking about minorities or people with disabilities and so on. Yes, there's a certain degree of accommodation that we need to go to uh, that makes sense and that's reasonable. But, but not every accommodation could be made that would not create a burden for someone to vote. This is what the Supreme Court is pointing out, is that there, there is going to be uh, some imposition on voters in this day and age, especially when we're talking about the challenges in, in securing elections that they're going to have to follow. And then what they're saying is that it's up to the states to look at that. Now, of course, it leaves open the possibility of reviewing laws based on discrimination. And this is what the other side is saying, uh, that the, the, the minority on the court that, that voted, uh, that, that ruled against this, the, the Arizona laws, they're saying that, wait a minute, this is, this is moving back in that direction where we start to put 
more imposition on voters and knowing that this in the past was used to discriminate against certain groups of people by race or ethnicity, uh, that we're going back to an era that the Voting Rights Act was intended to end uh, by giving intense scrutiny to changes in election laws, especially if they put requirements on voters to, so, so this has been the debate about voter ID, uh, about limiting options for mail-in voting, absentee voting, uh, voting on election day. And this debate will continue on that level because you have those who are going to say that any uh, action by the state to uh, restrict voting means or methods uh, that that does adversely affect, and this is what they're saying, it adversely affects a particular group. Uh, so let's look at Houston, where uh, we have large minority uh, populations uh, when compared with the population of the state, uh, that the intent here is we need more flexibility in order to accommodate uh, lack of transportation or lack of resources to, uh, to, to get to voting or to get a voter ID, uh, people who work different shifts, and, and thus the 24-hour uh, polling sites, the drive-through, and so on. So again, all of this debate at that level really does not have the data. And, and, and some of this, we don't want the data. Do we want data on widespread voter fraud? Well, the data is not there and that's good, but that means that we still need to continue to be vigilant about preventing fraud. On the other side, do we have discriminatory practices? Some would say that we still do. And this is again, a challenge, but are these laws intended to discriminate? And again, the court, the Supreme Court, the majority ruled that, that this was not the case with the Arizona laws. Could states do more to facilitate voting? Yes, if in Arizona that uh, collections of ballots is difficult in Native American tribal groups and in rural areas where driving to a post office is difficult or mail service is not uh, always, is not fully available, then do we need election workers to go and pick up ballots uh, we, there, there needs to be some balance here that's found that maintains uh, election integrity, but also does not, again, cause tremendous uh, expense on the part of the state in order to think that every which way voting can be done needs to be provided to accommodate uh, those particular needs or, or variations of challenges uh, that would be considered an imposition on voters. So it'll be interesting going forward. Now that they've ruled on the Arizona laws, uh, it's most certain that other laws will be coming forward, uh, may continue to be challenged. The Georgia laws are already in the courts and being challenged on the basis that they discriminate against African-Americans uh, in voting. Uh, but again, is the Supreme Court now with the majority, uh, as it ruled in this decision, in a position that will say, uh, uh, no, we're going to leave this up to the states. If we see no intent to discriminate, then it's up to the states uh, to uh, manage their election systems, to determine the boundaries, to determine what might be an imposition on voters, but also in a way to maintain uh, election security. There's always going to be the political side to this as well. Uh, while we had seen voting expanded, terms of opportunities and means and ways of voting, uh, this is going to become even more political based on the outcomes of elections, both state and national. So we don't see the, the, the partisanship part of this diminishing in any way, and it may swing as state legislatures change. Uh, it may swing depending on who's in uh, gets elected. Uh, if that changes in uh, the uh, 2024 uh, election, uh, we could see this become a non-issue by that point uh, be because of the push that is happening now versus uh, what uh, may be the issues of voting at that point in time. Uh, so it's something that we're going to continue to watch because it's not only happening here in Texas, but it's happening around the country. The Supreme Court's now involved. Uh, it's becoming more complex and more challenging in terms of a current uh, political issue in our state uh, and in our country. And so we'll give this more attention as we move forward and we see how these other election laws, as they are passed by states, move uh, through the court system, how they connect, especially here in Texas with 
the Supreme Court decision on the Arizona law. I think also what's driving this, and just to kind of conclude this kind of commentary on what's happening with election laws, I think part of what's driving this as well is a is a shift in giving the states back more of that responsibility and having the Supreme Court have that role of interpreting the lines of, of, of constitutionality, which is, is what they do, but on in this case is that if it's not very clear uh, in terms of impact that this is uh, an uh, undue impact on a particular group, that discrimination is not the intent, that it is part of the process of states uh, fulfilling their constitutional role to manage elections, that they're going to leave this with the states. That that seems like the trend for the, the foreseeable future. So it puts these other cases, the Georgia case, and potentially what could come out of Texas in jeopardy for challenges under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act uh, because the, the Supreme Court is pulling back from this and pulling the law back uh, to then leave it in the hands of the states to manage their elections. That's what happened when Section 5 uh, was uh, uh, dismissed in the Shelby case in 2013 when the Supreme Court released uh, the 15 states and areas around the country that were still under the Voting Rights Act and required the Department of Justice to review any changes to election laws uh, in those states or regions. So that, of course, opened the door now for states to make more adjustments on their own without having DOJ review and leading to, of course, the response after the 2020 election. So I think that is driving this. States want that. They want more uh, control over these processes. They don't want to continually be beholden to the federal government. Uh, they want to be able to manage it. As long as we have a uh, an election system, which I think for election security is critical, where it's every state in and of itself that manages its elections, uh, then I think that this will will be the the trend in the in the near future, uh, in that states will have much more say and much more direction over how they manage election laws and how those laws stand and are applied uh, within those states. So stay tuned for more of that. We'll get into more details as we see the, this progress in Texas to see where it goes in terms of the courts and what challenges will come. Now, that's not the only thing on the agenda uh, in the special session. It's the one thing that's up front and center because it was a focal point of the governor, of the Speaker of the House, and of the Lieutenant Governor. And so now we're moving into to see in the, in the next few weeks uh, where this goes, uh, how will it be uh, addressed, will they be able to find some compromise there or be able to move this through uh, where uh, they were not able to before. I went through the list of other things and we'll track these as they come up. Uh, so in the shows and the weeks ahead, we'll look at the different issues. Uh, some of them, like I said, we had already discussed, uh, including border security and critical race theory. The one thing that got left off that's getting a lot of media attention is that the special session does not include anything about the state's electric grid, especially with a re recent report <clears throat> that showed that we had a number of, of power plant failures in the month of June. Uh, so we have seen what happened in February with the winter storm. We have seen some challenges already early on in the early summer months, uh, but this could be added at some point. I think the governor's probably uh, waiting to see if these some signature issues can be addressed. How much push is to get this on the agenda? Uh, will this move to a second special session this summer, knowing that we will have a redistricting special session uh, in the near future once the census data is available uh, for uh, drawing the maps uh, for the uh, the next round of elections. Uh, so electric power grid is another critical issue uh, that we may see in terms of Texas managing uh, this uh, on its own and seeing how uh, it will uh, uh, manage this with both state and 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 corporate resources, private resources uh, in this partnership uh, in the near future. 
the other couple of things that I just wanted to bring up about this special session, this will be what uh, I said at the end of my interview with Brian Bondi, is that there's a lot of bargaining that goes on in these sessions. Uh, there, while the governor can determine the issues that will be up for focus, uh, there's a lot that is brought to the table and outcomes that both the legislature and the governor want to achieve. And so one of the things when you're looking at special sessions uh, is to watch what issues, auxiliary issues, uh, do come up or related issues uh, that will be a part of those political outcomes and whether those have an impact uh, on that outcome or not. Because everyone goes into these politically with things that they want to accomplish, things just like with the regular legislative session that they want to go back to their constituents and say, hey, look at what we did in this session. Uh, remember, this is the last session before the 2022 elections, other than the special sessions. And this is what the accomplishments or the things that people will run on in that next election. And so it's very, very critical that they are able to get their imprint on this session, the regular session and the special sessions, in order to show that they're working on behalf of their constituents. So watch this in the weeks ahead. You can go to the Texas Tribune. You can go to the Austin American Statesman. Uh, you can go to any of your re major regional newspapers, Dallas, Fort Worth, all have special sections that track the politics in the state and that are looking at this special session and what outcomes uh, may happen. I want to thank you for joining us this week on politics. We were glad to have Brian Bonday, president of the Granbury Chamber of Commerce, to join us. And please look at his website, granburychamber.com, for more information. Uh, on the Granbury Chamber and the programs and the things that they offer uh, in that city and in the region. We also thank you for joining us each week right here, 12 noon on Sundays on KTRL 90.5 FM. Check us out on Facebook for related articles. Listen to previous shows on SoundCloud and join us again next week. Thank you.